Fulhamish is backed for the season by Ladbrokes. Ladies and gentlemen, it is showtime. Please welcome the team of the Fulhamish podcast. Hello and welcome to the second Fulhamish Stats Show, the show that translates all of Fulham's dealings on the pitch into small bite-sized chunks for you to use as pub ammo with your mates. The last month has been tough for Fulham, we've fluctuated more than the pound after the Brexit vote and to break it all down I've got two guests with me. First things first, you may recognise this cheeky chappy from the podcast but you also might recognise him from playoff final posters. Uh, various <laughs> spots on BT Sport, uh, but also turning a Real Madrid shirt into a Juventus shirt for Bleacher Report. It's Jack Collins. Thank you, Ben. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for coming on at such short notice. No problem. Uh, my second guest today has been through more tables than a carpenter trying to get uh, prepared for today's show. It's George Singer. Hello, hello. How are you? Yeah, very good. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Thank you very much for coming on. Uh, I think we'll dive straight in with our first topic for today. Uh, which is going to be uh, our midfield hub. It's uh, Andre Frank, Zambo and Gisa. Easy for you uh, to say. Easy for me to say, harder for me uh, to pronounce, um, versus Kev McDonald in that hub of midfield. Um, there's been a lot of chat recently about the two of them, how they compare, um, who's giving out the most attacking um, actions and who's giving out the most defensive actions and who's contributing to us more. So it'd be good to see, um, in your two opinion, backed up by, fat, uh, by stats, Who's doing the best job in the hub of midfield? From my side, I don't think either of have really impressed that much this season. Obviously, I think we all agree that McDonald's done a stellar job in the championship. Obviously, you know, the last that show I was I was, you know, bigging up Angisa and he's he's let me down a bit. He's 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 struggled a bit, I think, personally. So both of them, you know, what we were really expecting from Angisa was that high defensive output, you know, loads of tackles, loads of interceptions winning the ball back loads and he's just not really doing it at the moment so you know he's averaging kind of a couple of tackles per 90 kind of about one one and a half interceptions per 90 which in the grand scheme of things is kind of under average uh and you know the kind of numbers he was getting you know back in France were really kind of double that so I guess looking back to how he performed you know at the Arsenal game you know, I think he's he's still got a lot of work to bed into that squad. Um, I think he's got, you know, a, a lot more to do. You know, from my side, I don't really see a standout between the two defensive midfielders at the moment. So, Jack, you're a big fan of Zambo. Yeah. Um, and you were basically team Zambo for when he came in and you've been basically flying the flag ever since. Obviously, as uh, George says, he's round about half of what he was doing in Marseille on the output. But how does that sort of translate onto the pitch? Yeah, obviously we've seen quite a lot of Zambo in fits and starts. You know, we haven't yet seen him do ninety minutes, which is yeah. obviously something that you have to you know, watch him bed in and all those kind of things. His stat output is better than McDonald's, not significantly, but it is better. You know, he, he ranks higher for pretty much everything bar mistakes. So he, he ranks higher for tackles, interceptions, fouls more. Um, and he, you know, the, that his pass success rate, weirdly, is, is also higher than McDonald's, despite yes, attempting far less passes. But I think what we're seeing is, the, and one of the things that's harder to measure in that regard is, is energy levels. Uh, and while, you know, yes, we'll see here, and I'm sure we'll talk about it in a bit, he takes far more mistakes than Kevin McDonald does in terms of dispossession, losing the ball. But he also recovers differently so yeah he commits far more fouls but what we saw against Arsenal for example was when he loses the ball and, and therefore 
you know, racks up a, a dispossession stat, he's in either to win it back or to make a foul. And, and a lot of us would rather the foul in that kind of area of the pitch where it's not necessarily dangerous than for someone to be bypassed completely, which is what happened when McDonald came on. So, you know, it's translating those kind of figures into feasible concepts. You have to look at something like energy in terms of what he brings to the table, I suppose. So I think the two main things we'll probably touch on here is his attacking output. This is Frank's attacking output that I'm talking about. Yeah. What sort of stats are we seeing from him in terms of key passes, for example, or forward passes, or just him trying to put Fulham on the front foot over the course of that 90 minutes? So I think one thing that he does really well, and it's kind of maybe more of a sign of a box-to-box midfielder than a you know pure kind of anchorman defensive midfielder, is his dribbling. So averages over two dribbles per game, which is similar to what he did back in France. You know, a really useful way of uh, you know if the operation are, are pressing high quickly, you know, dribble past the uh, you know dribble past the the pressing player and move the ball. You know get into good space free up the pressure and, and move the ball on so I think that's one thing he, he really gives in uh, in attack to the team yeah and translating you know that into what it affects is it stops us being pinned back as yep. such and mm-hmm. the way that he adds that dynamism in midfield is probably best you know regarded by this stat the, the more than two dribbles a game is, is a lot for someone who's supposed to be a defensive midfielder I know we're going to talk to him more of a box to box and uh, and outputs in both ways but for someone who came into this side kind of widely regarded as just a pure defensive midfielder that ability to burst from deep while it does cause Fulham problems in some ways in that we don't have a pure sitter and and especially if you're playing four at the back in our system that makes it makes a, a problem in some ways but with five at the back that's a really useful asset to have because it means that there's energy and dynamism in the midfield duo which is what we've been lacking in early games so when we talk about five at the back are we discounting McDonald from being that other midfielder in there next to Seri what sort of things are we looking at where it but perhaps um the argument for Kevin McDonald to be in there over Anguissa might not be as strong as the other way around, for example. I think I think K-Mac won't work in that it's the two-man midfield. And what you found with... The, the issue with the two-man midfield is if you come against a team who have three in midfield, you're going to get overrun. They're going to have more people in there. So yeah. how do you combat that? And we saw, obviously, with Chelsea when they won the league a couple of years ago, they had Kante in the middle who was so energetic and moved around so much, he essentially acted as two midfielders. And that's what you need. You need someone who can run about and cover that extra man, essentially. Um, and we've seen, kind of, you know, from the from the stats that we're looking at, he's got that energy. You know, him him and Seri together have that dynamism, can, you know, act almost in, in that pivot way and, and run around, which McDonald just can't do anymore. So... From my side, I really don't see McDonald working in that in that midfield too. That's fair enough. When McDonald was a sitter last season, we saw a lot of him dropping back into a back three yes. and acting as kind of the third centre back, especially when the two fullbacks bombed on. So that was kind of became part of his role. And with three at the back, you don't need that because obviously there's already a third person. And something that stood out to me in terms of the stats was that McDonald has two and a half times more clearances per 90 than Anguissa has and double the amount of long balls per 90. And that for me suggests someone who is relieving, sitting, relieving pressure and if we are going to transition to this five at the back system that's something that doesn't need to happen from there and, yeah. and like we said that dynamism the ability to dribble out and all of those things is so you know is negated by those yeah. kind of stats because that's not what Kevin McDonald does so if we are transitioning into that kind of system it doesn't necessarily suit the McDonald role completely 
And I think there's one more pressing um, argument in terms of a direct comparison between two players, and it's one that we touched on in the first ever stat show, and it's one that we'll look at again now we're four weeks down the line, but it's Bettinelli versus Fabri. Bettinelli has just, in this last Arsenal game, surpassed the amount of saves that Fabri made in the opening two games of the season, yeah. which feels unreal to me, but may make more sense to you guys. But I think the stat that we all look to when we're analysing a goalkeeper is their save percentage. How do they stack up, just very, very quickly? And if, if you were to make a call, one versus the other, who would you pick now and why? Obviously, we can have Sergio Rico in there. Performed very well against Millwall, but... It was also against Millwall. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you can't really look at saves. Um, it all depends on, on the attack. If you're against a team who don't shoot, you're not going to make any saves. You That's where save percentage comes in, because it, it takes that into account. We can't really look at Fabri Zeta. He's only played two games for us. Two games, yeah. If I'm wrong, yep, two games for us. And I think his save percentage was uh, was pretty good. It was around 70%, and Bettinelli's so far 60-something percent. So yeah. the issue the issues there there is the sample size, really. I've, I've always thought Bettinelli's a good keeper. He was a good championship keeper. I think he's an okay Premier League keeper, and that's what we're seeing in... The numbers, I think we could do better, but then it comes back to everyone's talking about the language barrier with with Fabri and, and Rico. So that's often quite hard to pull out on the stats. But yeah. in in my opinion, if we can get around that language barrier, get Rico talking to the defence, you know, get that communication going between the two, I'd be happy seeing Bettinelli phase out and one of the other guys in. Yeah. Okay. I just think from from their experience playing in the top leagues, having a, a better save percentage ratio, that's that's what I'd rather, personally. And Jack, just very quickly. I don't think Marcus Bettinelli's done a whole lot wrong. I also don't mm. think he's done a whole lot right. <laughs> it is mm. one of those things. He's saved most of the things I've expected him to save. Yeah, completely. He's not saved you know, much that I thought, oh, maybe he'll get to that. And, mm-hmm. you know, we'll speak about things like that. Lacazette, second Lacazette goal at the weekend where he got a hand to it and he looked annoyed at himself, which is why yep. you maybe look at that and go, oh, maybe he should have done better there. But aside from that, you know, there's not too much. That said, you know, when you're scrapping at the bottom of the table, you need your keeper to do you a favour sometimes mm-hmm. and make those kind of stops and, and communicate. Well, I think we can put to bed, you know, the argument that, Fulham's defence was bad in the first games because of yeah. Fabri's communication skills because it hasn't massively improved. Yeah. So, you know, there's something to be said there that we can build from that now. Whether that is, you know, over the international break when they get some time together to, to sit in and, and tuck in, we will see. Okay, cool. So we'll keep it with the defence and we're gonna uh, we're gonna concentrate on someone here that has been in quite a lot of slack. Um, and has had quite a lot of abuse um, held their way over the last few games. And that's Dennis Adoy, who was a linchpin of our defence as we came up uh, through the playoffs last season. Um, he impressed on a number of occasions and, and had a formidable partnership with Tim Ream. But since we've been in the Premier League, his um, mistakes that he seems to have, his, his certain rashness, um, his tendency to give away uh, penalties and, and bad decisions seems to be coming to the forefront a little bit more. On the basis of it, it looks like he should be making quite a lot of mistakes and, and we should be paying for it. Is that necessarily true, though? Or is Dennis doing himself justice by being able to get out of those positions? Yes, yeah, so I think this is where the stats can be quite interesting because they show you things that you maybe wouldn't expect. Yep. Um, the, I guess the key thing with defensive stats is you've you've always got to take them with a pinch of salt. And also, fundamentally... 
a defensive stat is quite a weird thing weird thing to have because obviously yep. when when you're attacking your role is to to make things happen so passes shots etc when you're a defender your role is to stop things happening so mm-hmm. yeah you might make two times more tackles compared to another player but is that because you're letting them come closer is that because you should be pressuring them to make them lose the ball and not even need to make a tackle so there's there's always issues with using defensive stats but if you combine lots together average per 90 and things like that you can start to paint a bit of a picture so again slight issue with sample size so all the defenders like we said we've pretty much hit every combination of, of yeah. defenders yeah. so uh so you know the sample size is quite small but of the defenders you've got so from a defensive output side so tackles interceptions blocks etc Adoy is one of the lowest of the various centre-backs we've got. Yep. He does uh, pass a lot, though. So of all the centre-backs, the second most passes. And unbelievably, the joint fewest errors, which really surprised me because I was, I was fully expecting him to be one of the worst ones there. Again, it depends how you categorise error in the yep. stats. But, but yeah. So, like you say, it depends how you categorise errors in the stats. Mm, yeah. how, how do they do that? What's the methodology behind it? Sorry to put you on the spot. Ooh. Um, so these stats will be collated by normally by Opta. Yeah. So Opta are the main set of people who collate them and then all your who scored, scorecard, etc. will use that data. Yeah. Um, the data will be, those kind of uh, data points will be gathered by basically people watching football. So you'll get someone watching a game of football who will manually attribute what happens there and then the issue you get is there there can be some kind of subjectivity so for for something like an error it can be due to whoever's you know whoever happens to be watching that game yeah obviously there's steps they put in place to try and reduce that but i guess you, you've got to be careful with those kind of subjective stats there so essentially i would put double the mistakes for a door than you would uh potentially Potentially, and that's where maybe a bit of bias comes in. I'm sorry to offend Guy Barlow here, but I certainly would. Um, <laughs> Jack, your thoughts on Adoy? Um Something that interested me was the fact that Mawson, Chambers and Lamarchand have all led had an error leading to a shot, including a goal. One of them led to a goal, Lamarchand's led to a goal, the other two were just shots on target. Adoy has none. There's no direct errors leading to goals. But So what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that you know, maybe he gives the ball away in slightly less risky positions or than that the others. Or his decision making slightly better than yeah, the others. Yeah, that can. It, it depends very much how how you look at it. You know, if if a doy goes on a wander and loses the ball, <laughs> you know, halfway through the opposition centre half, the chances are there's going to be more passes, more phases of play before it gets back to the Fulham goal, yeah. which therefore might be like, okay, that's not a direct error from a doy that's led to a goal, whereas. Le Marchand's pass against Burnley, for example, yeah. led directly to the goal, and that's why he's down as having, you know, led directly to that. So, Completely. but you know, you look at the start of the Watford game, and no one's attributed that error. You know, if, if anyone, I think it might be down to Seri, but even then, I think that's a little bit up in the air as opposed yeah. to having a direct kind of culprit for it. But we could all say that Chambers and Mawson were equally at fault for that because there was just no communication between the back three. So those haven't come into place, things like that. It's just direct errors. And so that does speak for Adoy. But in terms of George was saying his defensive actions, he's got you know, very poor kind of overall stats. Interestingly, Maxime Lamarchand came out on top of everything pretty really? much. Really? Um, 
Oh, George has the same thing. So there <laughs> we go. It's, um, it's so nice that you guys have found a rhythm so quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I know, you know, we've just slotted in here as a centre-back pairing, unlike any of elements. Almost Jarman and Monk-esque in that. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, that's that was interesting for me to find that, you know, Le Marchand's stats are so good compared yep. to, to everyone else's. But, you know, again, it's not necessarily given that he's the only one that's given up a direct error to a goal. Yep. You can't look at that as the be-all and end-all, but it's it's interesting to look at. So I think in terms of having direct errors that have led to goal, it correlates nicely. And obviously correlation being the stat show is a lovely way to, to move straight on Beautiful. to our next point, which will be Fulham have um, given up the most shots in the Premier League yep. at the moment and have let in the most goals, 21. Um, if we carry on this trend, um, we are on course to set a record for the most amount of goals conceded in this season ever by any team. It's pretty impressive. Has anyone kept up this level of performance and stayed in the Premier League? No. Uh, no, I'm no. guessing. Well, no. So shots per game and goals per game conceded. No one's even hit the level we're at the moment. Agreed. We've, we've got a small sample size. And as... As we play more, as we play some of the weaker teams, look, that's going to come down. Um, I think the interesting thing going through, so I looked at this time last year, so what teams were in similar positions to us, uh, the two that stood out were Palace and Leicester. So obviously Palace had the really tough start to the season. No wins from seven. No, no goals wins from seven. seven. Uh, and then Leicester had all the issues. Uh, you know, Claude Puel was under, under a lot of pressure very early on. And they managed to turn it round. Yep. Uh, and interestingly, looking at the teams who went down, for instance, West Brom at this time last year had a really great defensive record. And I think that's partly, they did still have Pulis this yeah, time they did. Yep. last season. I think that's that's a large part to it. So it's I think it's definitely too early to read too much into it. But we've got a lot of time to turn it around like a lot of teams did last year. I think it's you know, it's obviously interesting to look at this at this point. And yes, no one has ever, if we were to carry on like this, we would be setting records. And I think if you're setting records for goals conceded, it's going to be tough. You know, even if you play a kind of Keegan-esque, will score more than you <laughs> kind of territory, there, you know, you have to be very, very good to pull that kind of thing off. And yeah. while we have a, an excellent squad on, on paper and there is a lot of talent there undoubtedly, I don't know if we're conceptually good enough to pull that kind of thing off for an entire season. It, it's just interesting, I think, to look at this, and and we've con- we've only faced the third most shots. We faced the most shots on target, but only the yep. third most shots. Brighton and Burnley have have conceded more shots than us. But considering we're letting people in and around dangerous areas in order to have those shots, something needs tightening up pretty sharpish. Well, interesting that you say Brighton and Burnley have faced the most shots in the Premier League. Arguably, their calibre of keeper is very, very good. You've got Matt Ryan there, who's the Australian national yep. team goalkeeper. And you've got Joe Hart, who, despite everyone's flack <laughs> He's turning around him, this season. Has done very, very yes, well this season. Good. And once you put trust in someone like Joe Hart, he will perform. I think this could this be a difference maker between us and the likes of Brighton, Burnley, potentially the likes of Bournemouth, maybe like Huddersfield, for example. Yeah, Burn- Burnley have witchcraft going on. I'm sure there's there's something Dash is doing over there. You know the the data that they had last year. Again, one of the most shots conceded yet, the fewest goals. So many block shots. There's something magical going on there. I don't know what Dash is doing. Uh, <laughs> it's probably not legal, but uh, but yeah, he's uh, he's he's doing some great stuff there. I think from from my side. The really worrying stuff is so from looking out so i looked at some of the stepping back a bit data so entries into 18 so how many times had the opposition broken your 18 yard line so i.e the edge of the penalty box 
we're the second worst in the league for that per game. Behind? Uh, West Ham? Well, that doesn't West surprise Ham. me. Um, then for shots conceded, like we're, we're one of the worst there. Expected goals per shot, i.e. on average. Where how, are these shots coming from? Yeah, yeah, we're the worst in the league. So, so we're giving them too many high-value chances in and around our box yeah. Yeah. every single game, which is what we t- touched on in the first that show when we um, basically backed up the fact that Fulham are giving up way too many high-value chances um, early in the first four games to even think about surviving in this league. Yeah. And we're still doing it even now after the international break. It's quite worrying, really, isn't it? It really is. And you, you couple those together, we're conceding loads of shots and they're all great quality shots. There's no surprise we're conceding the most per game. And to me, we've spoken a lot about particular players, centre-backs, spoken a bit about Anguissa. This, to me, this isn't an issue with a single player. This is an issue with the system. Yeah. There's clearly not enough focus going on, you know, in, in defensive uh, defensive systems, yeah. actions. There's got to be something around the, the team and the players all switching around. That yeah. must have an impact. Yeah. But clearly there's something we need to do better here and from your point of view Jack yeah there, there's something obviously to be said for the fact that you know Stuart Gray's departure and, and how this all ties in because you, you look at us last year we weren't defensively you know cohesive by any stretch of imagination especially early on in the season but we were better than this yeah. we weren't you know we were, we gave away a lot of goals at late in games early on if you remember and, and those things but we weren't just conceding at will you know apart from maybe that Bristol City game where they could have put ten past us. Yeah. It, they, they were, that was really one of the only times where you were like, okay, they could just score as many as they want here. Yeah. And there have been a lot of times this season. Every time a team came forward, they looked like they were going to score, and the data backs it up, which is yeah. obviously you know reassuring in some senses because it means that we're not going mad. But it's very disheartening in other senses because this needs sorting fast. It goes back to system. It yeah. goes back to Slavisa needs to decide on his best system very quickly. Yeah. He needs to decide on his best you know back five or or back four whatever it is very quickly because once those pieces are in place it becomes easier to then work on the organizational side of it but i do think that a lot of this needs to be backed up with the fact we need some sort of defensive specialist in the club and it makes it makes absolutely no surprise to me that since the departure of stuart gray our defense has lost its cohesion yeah you spoke a lot about identity in that previous segment. I think something that comes onto that quite nicely is Fulham do have this identity to always want to play it where possible, to play it out the back, to play through the thirds. Yeah. And not many other Premier League teams do that and take the risks that we do. One notably is probably Wolves. You obviously have the, the two sides at the top of the league this year, which are Man City and, and Liverpool, and you're starting to see Chelsea implement that kind of style as well. How do we compare as a defensive unit versus other teams in and around us, in and around the Premier League in terms of passing statistics. Is it something that will, could potentially hinder us across the rest of the season? And should we be looking to go a little bit more direct in these next few games? In terms of going just a little bit more broad to begin with, because I know George has the deep dive on the defensive stats, we have the most passes of any team outside the top six in general. Yeah. Um, so that's obviously shows that that continuation of style has been backed up by the statistics and more than the likes of Wolves who actually are surprisingly low down the list behind the likes of Leicester and that so you know we've tried to translate that into thing and we've also in terms of going forward had more shots than pretty much any of those teams which is interesting because we have tried to work the ball into areas so does does this basically could this basically mean that Wolves um, direct style of attacking play obviously you say they've got less passes clearly means that they're focusing a lot more on the transitions which is something that's 
under Nuno and under a Portuguese coach has always been at the forefront of the way they play. Yeah, of course. Is, is that how it translates? Well, on the yeah. Pitch? You know, you remember Andre Vieira Boas at Chelsea, and then even more so at Tottenham, yeah. and became that kind of pressing through the transition style, and yeah. and you know the, the the kind of transition idea that's kind of been a little bit broken up by the likes of Klopp and, yeah. and, and Co. Because that phase doesn't necessarily exist anymore. But that was obviously Mourinho's first priority when he came in at first. And Vieira Boas was obviously his kind of protege, yeah. although they were very different in terms of the way that they actually played. That Portuguese nature to look at the transition as the most important phase yeah. of, of play has always kind of come across and and yes you see that in Nuno's teams they defend very well mm. uh, and that's that's something that can't be underestimated they've kept that kind of back four very similar to what it was last five yeah. very similar to what it was last year and from there they've they've learned that kind of direct style the wing backs are so prominent in their in their system yeah. and that's a very very common trait of a, of a transitional side and so if you look at that coming back to us we need to decide what we are very quickly yeah. and the first part of that works on how the defensive passing statistics work out and, and imagine George can go further into depth segues me lovely yeah, uh, absolutely so looking at the so really simply passes per 90 minutes for defenders so looking at all the defenders across the Premier League how many passes they make per 90 so as you'd expect, Liverpool and City players are all at the top. I think the top five are Man City and Van Dijk's in there or something. Otamendi had the most passes in the whole of the Premier League last year. Exactly. And that's that's because they and play... like 100% passing success <laughs> rate. All two metres to company to arrive in, whatever. Um, and, yeah, so so looking, it's all, it's all those big names. The top non-Big Four players, so non-City, Liverpool, Man City, uh, yeah. Tottenham, whatever, is Le Marchand. Um, and all five of our centre-backs are in the top 25. So we're in the, I guess, in the top five passing defensive teams, if that makes sense. OK, yeah, that makes yeah. sense. So it, it's clearly the system. It's clearly we've bought in the kind of players who want to do that. For instance, Le Marchand, it's a similar numbers to what uh, to to what he hit in France the previous, uh, previous season. So, you know, it's definitely what the recruitment guys are looking for there. Yeah. And I think I'm sure we'll, we'll maybe touch on it a bit later, but it's it's generating into those attacks. We're creating a fair amount of shots. Um, uh, you, I guess the Premier League's a bit weird in that the top six are so far ahead that sometimes it's best just to get rid of them. The mini league, uh, yeah. yeah, and 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 look best at how we best of the rest, and yeah, we're we're absolutely. pretty good in in the best of the rest. So from an attacking side, I think it works. I think it generates the chances. Yeah, we could do better, and I think there's there's definitely things we could learn from Wolves who yep. you know I, I love the way they're, they're attacking this year the issue is and we've spoken about it before it's those defensive errors you know if you pass loads between the centre-backs if you get it wrong you've given them a one-on-one -on -one chance we've seen that three four five times this season already so yep. there's there's definite upsides but we do have to live with that risk and it's definitely I think as the centre-backs play more together they'll be more in tune and less likely to make those mistakes definitely yep. A final point here is someone that we did touch on again in the first ever stats show. Um, someone that's had really glowing review from a large part of our fan base um, and has had a more prominent role in Fulham's last four fixtures, more so than he did in the previous four. And that's the Argentinian wing wizard, Luciano Vieto. I can see what he sort of does on the pitch. He likes to take it away from uh, the play in very tight spaces. He likes to try and expose... Um, 
um, space on the wings. He tries to run at people. He's really good in those tight, nickety, uh, like nickety little spaces. Yeah. It's just in front of the back four, where we need him to take the ball and run with it, and he does that really well. What else does he do? What other impacts does he have on our team? And from an attacking output, is he really going to elevate us to the level we need to be to survive in this league? I like him. He's got the joint most assists in the league, obviously, which are helped by those two against Burnley, where yeah. one of them was the pass to Seri before a wonder goal. So, you know, that <laughs> he, count. But, you know, he has the joint most assists in the league with four. He's also by far our most creative player. He's averaged 2.6... How, how are you defining that? Sorry. Well, he's averaged 2.6 chances created per 90 minutes, yeah. um, which is... Of, of players to have featured in seven games or more, he's ahead of the likes of Sterling, Salah, Sane and Pogba. He's only behind, you know, sort of the likes of Ryan Fraser, who's been on fire this season, yeah. uh, Gilfie Sigurdsson, William and Gabby Jesus and Eden Hazard. So we can expect that someone will come in for Vieto around about January and give us, what, 50 mil? Apart from he's on loan. On loan. Cheers for that. <laughs> Move on. Um, yeah, look, he, he's been very, very good in a creative sense and especially given the fact that we needed someone necessarily to step up in the absence of Kearney. He, he's actually filled that gap quite nicely. Okay. You know, I don't think they're similar players by any stretch of the imagination, and I don't think that. No, don't I think come they could, for the king. I think they could play together very yeah. nicely, yeah. but in Kearney's absence, and especially because a lot of us thought it was going to be Jean-Michel Seri that stepped up, it's actually been Vieto that's been creating, and you know, he did it again this weekend. He does have the tendency to occasionally go missing. His defensive mm. work rate is weirdly high for someone who a lot of people say doesn't track back yeah. but he has in the second half of games especially in the lights of the Arsenal game just faded out of contention and, yeah. and there are moments but in general I think he's been absolutely fantastic for us George? Yeah I think what's interesting is comparing uh, this season Vieto to kind of looking back at was it kind of 14-15 Villarreal season Villarreal season where he absolutely smashed in the goals and comparing the two if you get their, you know, attacking radar up, we love our radars here, attacking radars up, comparing the two, he's a completely different player now compared to what he was. When back in uh, back in that season, playing a lot more as the, the striker, a lot higher up the yeah. pitch, generating a lot more shots, a lot more goals, and really acting more as a finisher rather than a playmaker. And definitely what we're seeing this year, slightly more reserved role out on the wing, being a lot more creative, you know, making far more passes we've spoken about getting loads of assists um i think it's unlikely he'll you know he'll keep it up from an uh, expected assist side he's around two compared to five assists so we'd expect it's unlikely he's going to continue assisting in this level um but he's he's still you know giving a lot to the side we've spoken about kind of key passes and, and things like that averaging kind of a dribble a game which is pretty good again so I think he he offers a lot to the team uh, but yeah definitely a, a different kind of player so I don't think you know it's it's probably got an awful lot to do where Slav's playing him but it definitely feels like a different Vieto to, to one of uh, three or four years ago yeah so when you said he's a different Vieto to three or four years ago under then he was playing for Marcelino's Villarreal and Marcelino has a massive tendency just to play a flat four four two. And you see that now with his Valencia, Valencia squad, and they're very direct, and they like to get the ball up to forwards really quickly, which is why Vieto has had such a big impact for that Villarreal side. I remember him turning Diogo Godin inside out for a, a wonderful goal when they beat Atletico. And it doesn't often happen to a, a defender like Godin. He does have pedigree. He's such a good player. Yeah. 
I think if we got him near a Mitrovic, he hugs the wing quite a little bit. Yeah. If we got him near a Mitrovic, we could see the best come out of him once again. I was going to say, I was, I was actually going to ask you, I thought when obviously when Tom Kearney comes back into the system, if we yeah. persist with the five at the back and we go yeah. to three in the middle, seeing Vieto off Mitrovic yeah. might see more of a return to that kind of ruthless side. The only thing that concerns me slightly about that is his... Uh, his chance conversion rate is very, very low. Obviously, yeah. he hasn't scored. So, but but more than that, he's had some big chances yeah, in, in a has. couple of moments. Mm. He's got free on goal a couple of times and hasn't even re- massively tested the keeper. Well, and the one doesn't... that comes to mind is Everton. Of course. Well, the one that came to mind for me was the first one against Watford, yes. where he was put through on goal by Andre Scherler and one on one. And you expect someone who has been turned from a striker into a, a more reserve player to be absolutely feeding off that. That's bread and butter to us, yeah. to an actual striker. And someone of Vieto's calibre in that, you know, 14-15 season where he was just unstoppable and unplayable at times. Yeah. You'd expect that to be sort of bread and butter for him. So if he is to move forward and back into that uh, position behind Mitrovic, then I'd expect to see him, you know, hope to increase his output. Otherwise, he's going to be very difficult to justify inclusion <laughs> over someone like Scherler, who, yeah. while is quite wild with his shots, does seem to put them away a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, Scherler averages, I think, the third most shots per game so far this season, with Mitrovic yep. second. So we're generating loads of shots. That's the issue that I'd have with if we are going to a two-up-front system. I think Scherler, Scherler's done enough to, to guarantee his place for a bit. I think it would be it would be harsh to get rid of him. I guess it's a nice problem to, for Slav to have, you know, too many players for the system. So we, we've got lots of games. We'll have to rotate around. At the moment of the two, I think Scherler's done more, personally. Yeah. I think he's offering more, particularly, you know, in attack. He's got his shooting boots on. If of the two I had to drop one, I'd drop Vieto. But I, I still quite like the, the front three I of those three to go. I would go the other way. Oh, would you? I would. Okay. I, I like... Uh, you know, it's not about... I just think that Scherler shoots a lot when shots aren't on. And I imagine the date will back me up there. Yeah, there there, right. there yeah. are a lot of shots no, where Scherler will go... He'll look at it and they'll be like, oh, there's only three players in front of me. Maybe I'll squeeze it through the gap. <laughs> and when he gets but into those... he does those, that. He has squeezed he, it through the gap. Once he gets it into those one-on-one positions, yeah. I think Scherler's deadly. But he he d- often of doesn't look for the pass off. when he needs one, and that's you don't the only difference. Oh no, I'm win the lottery. And, uh, and Vieto hasn't been shooting enough <laughs> like for my yeah. for my liking. But I think that if we got him into that position closer to Mitrovic, yeah. uh, then I think he'd actually his output would yeah. increase. And I think Scherler's a wonderful player to have around the place, and I think that he will feature heavily. And I, I think that if if it was to happen tomorrow, Stav would put Scherler in ahead of Vieto. Mm. Yeah. But right now, I think that creativity behind Mitrovic and that ability to sort of slip him in maybe occasionally, as opposed to having a go, might actually fall in Vieto's favour. And I think, you know, with a, a few potentially easier games coming up, it's going to be a lot easier for Vieto to get chances against Cardiff than it is Arsenal. So hopefully we'll we'll see some of those chances come through and him pushing a bit further forward. Getting off the mark, maybe. Absolutely. Absolutely. Guys, I'd like to say thank you very much for you to, uh, both coming on today. Uh, you had some incredible points, and I hope all of our viewers that watch the video will really, really like it. We'll take it into the pub, absolutely beast their mates over a few points. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then they'll watch that show episode three when it comes back. Uh, that'll be in around about a month's time. We like to keep it in a sample of around about four or five games to give you the best and most in-depth insights we possibly can. So, Jack... Thanks for taking time out of your hectic you. schedule across all major broadcasts to come on for the introduction. <laughs> thank you very much for having me, Benjamin. <laughs> and George, thank you very much for coming in, providing all the info you could ever need to smash your mate. Thank you, Ben. <laughs> Cheers, and thank you very much for watching. We'll see you in a few weeks. Goodbye. Cheers.
ACAST powers some of the world's best podcasts. Here's a show we recommend. Hi, I'm Beth. And I'm Sarah. And we're the hosts of Pantsuit Politics, where we've built a community around grace-filled political conversations. And we wanted to share the words of our listeners because they understand best what we do. Susan told us, Many times I've used your words when my own have failed, opening doors that allow for discussion rather than debate. Amber says we encourage her to be more involved, to be a better citizen, and to be part of her community. Nicole said, Listening to you two process with one another is the only way for me to become unstuck. With the impending election on the horizon, join us and our amazing community of listeners at Pantsuit Politics as we prepare to vote, process the election, and prioritize our values and each other. Make sure you participate in our democracy by listening to Pantsuit Politics and a of course, exercising your right to vote. ACAST, 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 ACAST recommends. recommends.